difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tosh Robinson here with... Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. Here in The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum, and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we have two films about bad guys conscripted to do good things, or at least tough things that need doing. Scott... I have always suspected that you're a supervillain in disguise, so I order you to field this one. You're not my superior officer, Tasha, and you haven't implanted a bomb in my neck, so you can't make me do nothing. But for the sake of the podcast, sure. This week, we're looking at the DC Expanded Universe movie, Suicide Squad, which has a group of notorious villains being forced, under the threat of death, to fight a covert war on behalf of the American government. It's notable, though, that they mostly end up fighting another villain released by the same program that pulled them out of jail and back onto the streets. Writer-director David Ayer has said Suicide Squad is just a modern riff on Robert Aldrich's 1967 war movie The Dirty Dozen, which also has the American government scouring its own jails for criminals and misfits it can send on a dangerous mission. But Aldrich's band of unwashed misanthropes have a slightly nobler cause. They're fighting Nazis, and in the process, earning back their freedom and self-respect at least the ones who survive. We're going to be looking at both Suicide Squad and The Dirty Dozen back-to-back to to see what both films have to say about villains and heroes and the thin line between the two of them. But we're also going to spend a little time digging into the people behind both of these few, these unhappy few, these bands of rejects. Both movies have a lot to say about leadership, governmental indifference, and the big gap between the people behind the scenes and the people on the front line of any war, whether it's against Hitler or a bunch of silly glowing CGI hoobajoobs. Donald Duck is down at the crossroads with a machine gun, so it's just about time to kick off our mission and get into these films. Project Amnesty. You will select 12 general prisoners convicted and sentenced to death or to long terms of imprisonment for murder, rape, robbery, and or other crimes of violence and so forth. Train and qualify these prisoners in as much of the business of behind-the-lines operations as they can absorb in a brief but unspecified time. You will then deliver them secretly into the European mainland and just prior to the invasion, attack and destroy the target specified... Overleaf. That's all? That's all. By all reports, Robert Aldrich's The Dirty Dozen had a rocky road to the screen long before filming started. There's a long list of well-known, respectable actors who turned down roles because they didn't like the characters of The Dirty Dozen, who all start out as sullen goldbrickers in military prison before Lee Marvin as Major Reisman shows up to sort them into shape. John Wayne objected to the adultery in the script. Jack Palance objected to the racism. Lee Marvin himself was struggling with alcoholism at the time, and he apparently turned up drunk on set frequently enough that Charles Bronson physically confronted and threatened him about it. Marvin was possibly just bitter because he felt the movie was, as he put it, crap. He'd served in the Marines himself, and he felt the film was unrealistic and disrespectful to the military tradition. One of the other stars, Trini Lopez, abandoned the film two-thirds of the way through shooting, and his character gets killed off-screen right before the big action sequence. And another of the stars, Jim Brown, says he loved every moment of the production, but he wound up having to dramatically quit his professional football career during shooting in order to stay on the set. And then there were the critical reviews on release, many of which dismissed the film as too violent, too ugly, or just not positive enough about American heroes. Here's our New York Times favorite, Bosley Crowther, weighing in with a quote that he probably could have written about Suicide Squad today. To bathe these rascals in a specious heroic light, to make their hoodlum bravado and defiance of discipline and their nasty kind of gutter solidarity seem exhilarating and admirable is encouraging a spirit of hooliganism that is brazenly antisocial, to say the least. We love you, Bosley. 
But The Dirty Dozen was a huge financial success in its day, and it dominated the box office for weeks in the summer of 1967. It was part of a wave of films that were changing how American film looked at American institutions and specifically at American heroes. This was the same year Bonnie and Clyde made it look cool to be a gangster, which also offended the era's cultural scolds. It was the same year as The Graduate, which pegged to the rootlessness and dissatisfaction that a lot of young Americans were feeling in the 1960s. It was the same year Guess Who's Coming to Dinner tried to preach to audiences about racial issues, while In the Heat of the Night did a much better job while telling a better story. The Dirty Dozen upset a lot of the same people who were upset by these films, but it's also remembered today in part for being a major cultural turning point that helped change how war and the American experience were depicted on screen. The new wave of cynical confrontational films about Vietnam were still a few years off, but The Dirty Dozen was a template that showed how it could be done, and done in a way that would pull in audiences. In our last pair of podcasts, Keith took the writing world to task for using the word dated to refer to films that are clearly products of their era, in terms of their special effects, their acting style, or their narrative construction. But Dirty Dozen feels like a movie that's dated in a particularly interesting way. The attitudes toward war that were antisocial and repulsive to some viewers back then feel pretty natural to us today, and the violence that was considered so barbaric and beyond the pale doesn't have the same weight anymore. Films like Suicide Squad have to work pretty hard to be shocking after 50 years of films following in the Dirty Dozen's footsteps. So in a minute, we're going to get into how the Dirty Dozen looks today and what it says about heroes and anti-heroes in an era full of them. Stay tuned. All right, Pullen, on your feet. Come on, right over here, Posey. Come on, dress it up there. Get in line. What's this about refusing to shave? Who is refusing to shave? We are. Who is we? We! All those refusing to shave take one step forward. stink, huh? And maybe it's too? Well, that's okay with me because I don't have to smell you. All right, Sergeant, there will be no further issue of shaving equipment or the use of soap. And there will be no more hot meals. Just K-Ration. Courtesy of Mr. Franco. So uh, just sort of polling the table, we just found out that in spite of The Dirty Dozen's reputation, this was a new film to three of us. Three of us hadn't seen it before. Scott had already. Mm-hmm. I'm curious for those of you who hadn't seen it before, what it was like for you this, this first time. And Scott, sort of what, what's your history with the film? Well, The Dirty Dozen uh, was one of those movies that I watched with my dad. It's one of those oh, movies who, for, mo- one of those movies for guys who uh, like movies or whatever they, the TBS called them or TNT. But because my, my dad loved war movies and that is what this is, you know. I'd, used to, I'd watch The Longest Day with him, for example, and Failsafe, etc. So th- this was a comfortable uh, movie to, to watch with him. And it was just a nice, for me, it was nice to return to the film this time. I guess the one thing that stood out for me this time was, indeed, the violence in the film, which is, for the period, was pretty shocking, as you, as you demonstrated with that reading of Bosley Crowther's uh, monocle shattering <laughs> <laughs> review. That man went through more monocles, I swear. Uh, so I appreciated that. And of course, the other thing I appreciated was how influential it's been. I mean, you know, this is a, I mean, not just on Suicide Squad, but on, you know, Inglorious Bastards and really Quentin Tarantino's work in general. You can see such a, just the idea of these anti-heroes, the level of violent fantasy, the willingness to really push genre to the limits. I mean, I don't think we, we can't really appreciate it now, which is again, a, a nice, I'm glad you brought the Bosley Crowther 
review into it so you get a sense of just how shocking it was at the time, which not maybe can't get a sense now, but you could see how they both were really pushing the same buttons and actually makes you think like what are, what are Quentin Tarantino's films going to look like 30 years from now? Are they going to mm-hmm. settle a little, a little differently? Are we going to treat them more kindly and with less uh, outrage? Who knows? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know why I hadn't seen it before because I did. I really enjoyed this a lot. I think in part because it was on TV all the time, and it's one of those movies that was kind of. I mean, the first time I saw uh, Sergio Leone's movies, they looked awful on television. Mm-hmm. And, and this is not a. This is a really good widescreen movie. Yeah. And and uh, there's something really kind of unappealing about it. One of the ways I first encountered it, and then I don't know, just years later, years passed, and here I am. But uh, no, I, I really, I really enjoyed it, and I'm I'm not sure why I held out all these years. Uh, for speaking specifically for people who could have watched it. TV. When I was kind of doing research online, I ran into some forums where people who had seen it on TV were asking, what happened to this character? What happened to that character? They just disappear from the film. And you know, anything that you watch on television, especially anything you watched on television in the 80s, was probably heavily edited, both for commercials and for violence. Mm -hmm. And apparently enough of this film got cut that just it suddenly became the dirty three and nobody was really sure how. (laughs) So you're probably lucky you didn't see it, young Scott. I'm I'm sort of curious whether the version that you saw was chopped up enough that you know what happened. I would have absolutely no memory of that. I I, I don't, (laughs) you know, I I remember seeing some films with my dad, but as far as comparing cuts from something I saw uh, now, which is something I saw, you know, 30 years ago, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Did the violence stand out to you all at all as a kid, do you recall? No, I don't think so. But I guess it was still, there was still enough distance. I mean, this yeah. was 1967. I would have I would have seen it probably uh, in the 80s you know, in, a t- in, a, in a TV edited version. So I, I don't think I would have been startled by the violence at all. So it's just you're so desensitized already at a young age <laughs> Oh yeah, by violence. That's well, it right. does make me wonder if the Telly Savalas character was even in the TV version. Oh, right. Genevieve, what was your experience with the film? My really, my only, not my only knowledge, but my, my primary knowledge of this film was the Sleepless in Seattle bit about it. Does every, everyone know what I'm talking about here no. where, yep. uh, where they're t- talking about women's movies and guys' movies and uh, this is kind of held up as the, the quintessential guys' movie and the one that makes uh, Tom Hanks and Victor Garber cry. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of always my perception of, of this movie. And, you know, I'm kind of on record as not loving war movies in general and, you know, super dude-centric movies. Like, basically, I, I knew that this movie was probably not for me, and I went into it with those expectations. And I was I was pleasantly surprised how engaged I, I was in it, probably because of the way it's structured, where it, it, it does build to that big climax, and there is not a lot of kind of wartime trauma th- throughout. It's actually pretty lighthearted up un- until the third act. So I was It's kind of a neat gear shift too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. A lot of the performances really stuck out to me obviously Cassavetes for which he was nominated, right? Mm-hmm. He yeah, didn't win, but um and I really liked Lee Marvin in this and oh, I was yeah. I, I was surprised by how modern his performance felt. There's a cynicism to to the performance and um kind of a weariness that I I really responded to in that character and it's interesting to hear you say in the keynote that he was apparently uh, battling alcoholism at the time because that puts that performance in possibly a a slightly different light as well but yeah I mean I I still think this is not like a a me movie necessarily but I I definitely enjoyed visiting it for the first time 
You know, I'm in the same place of just I've never enjoyed war movies. And so it took me a long time to get around to seeing like really basic standards of the genre that you have to watch as a film critic, like uh, Full Metal Jacket, Mm -hmm. because I resisted and Apocalypse Now, because I resisted them because in my head there was just a a great big box called war movies. And what I found more and more uh, as I've both gotten older and hopefully matured slightly as a film critic is that films that are subversive about war have a lot more appeal to me than most of the films that take kind of the the honor and sacrifice of war extremely seriously. Mm. I mean, there are some people that do that really well. And there are some characters that make it really resonant, but films that kind of dig under that surface to see what's there, like this one does, kind of have more appeal to me. But that means I have to bring up MASH in this context because there is, there is oh, a, a, a little bit of MASH uh, crossover here, both in terms of that kind of subversive take on war you're talking about, also obviously Donald Sutherland, and there there is a direct uh, Last Supper shot in, mm-hmm. in both movies too. I don't know if the, MASH is specifically calling it this movie or if they're both just referencing The Last Supper. But yeah, it was... I think the the big difference between this and MASH is that the female characters are completely incidental in this movie. Like, they're barely there, you know, and it's they are dispatched in kind of like brutal fashion, but it's it's not capital P problematic the way that uh, I think you and I felt about MASH. Well, part of that, and it is actually in my notes that that this movie feels like watching MASH again and then watching the last act of a conventional war film yeah. uh, because it, it does gear shift. Uh, this movie gear shifts several times, um, but the first couple of acts feel pretty mashy. And it didn't, it didn't trip that trigger for me at all. And the reason, I think, has less to do with the women and has more to do with, with the content because MASH is about a bunch of people in unpleasant circumstances who cope by cutting up and bullying each other. And there are pretty clear winners and losers in that dynamic. Here, everybody razzes each other a lot, but in the end, they all pull together to accomplish something. And an awful lot of them pay the the ultimate price for it. There's a camaraderie that builds here over time. And we, we actively move the dynamic from a bunch of clowns cutting up to escape a miserable situation to a bunch of men who mostly care about each other in a brothers in arms kind of way, if not a necessarily a personal way. And I just I find that a compelling narrative in the same way I find like a really good montage, you know, mm-hmm. compelling. You like to see people progress. You like to see an arc. Well, to me, I, I just I don't see a huge amount of crossover for a couple of reasons. One, I don't think Altman well, uh, is really interested in satisfying genre conventions or payoffs in the same way that Aldrich is. Altman is about establishing this setting, really, and exploring it as Altman does. Um, whereas Aldrich really does have a very strong three-act structure, and it's a, it's a conventional genre film in a lot of respects uh he's just very very good at it i think the uh, attitude though is is there it's sure. a precursor to to mainstream entertainment that could could find a way to uh, question you know sort of question authority in this in this way and kind but of, like, i would appeal. also would you think this is a i don't even i don't even think of it as a war film really I, I, mm-hmm. I, I, it's almost I, more I, like a heist movie mm-hmm. yeah there is some heisty element to it but i mean i mean just isn't everybody's like wearing he's, like he's drab saying, at all times not, i don't think he's <laughs> saying anything about war i don't think uh you know that this mission is i think he's saying something about the how the camaraderie between people actually doing the fighting uh contrast with the military brass sort of the distance mm-hmm. that they have from from the men who actually 
actually yeah, fight. Yeah, I, think, I mean, that is a enlisted versus officers conflict that's as old as the military, though. Yeah, he I, also is very specifically saying that war is hell and people do terrible things in wartime because that was something he had to stand up for with this movie. He was apparently told that he had a really good chance of an Oscar if he cut out the scene where the, the Nazi bunker gets firebombed because helpless people die, sure, people that okay. can't escape, and women die. And he was told, you know, that's just too ugly for, for the Oscars. He opted to keep that in because he specifically wanted to send the message that, that people do, that there are atrocities on both sides. Okay, yeah. well, may, maybe I'm not giving it credit enough for being, I guess, a realistic war film. Um, uh, I didn't... Oh, I well, I, there's not, there's yeah. no battlefield scene. Yeah, that's kind I of... Think maybe, that's what I mean. no... maybe that's what I mean. I, I, I get what you're saying, and I think that is it's critical that he kept that in there. It is legitimately uh, horrific even. But I, it's it's just hard for me to process this like I do... You know, say a Samuel Fuller war movie, or mm. or you know, The Longest Day, or the, some of the other war f- films that I saw, you know, with my father at the time, which which seemed really committed to being like this piece of history or this commentary on history. Um, I think it's a little just a, a step back from that, a little bit more abstracted. I mean, for what it's worth, this film was based in history. This film was based on an actual specific unit of, of criminals that were sent in the battle. And the who, Filthy 13. The Filthy 13. They, they, they actually weren't criminals. They were just like uh, scoundrels, I guess you, you would call them. <laughs> they, they, they did... Were they rap <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, they faced a lot of disciplinary mm-hmm. um, action, but they weren't criminals the way... The way but... Hooligans? Were there was there <laughs> hooliganism involved? Were they rowdy? Yeah, they were They were filthy, as their name would. Uh... Well, the filthy thing, as, as with the dirty thing, specifically refers to like a vow they took to not wash and nothing I read about the original Filthy 13 seemed to address why they decided that they weren't going to wash anymore like in the film it's very specific why they do it and it kind of becomes a defining thing I would have liked to know more about the original Filthy 13 and what what made them decide that showers were bad but uh, you're talking about how uh, like what Aldrich is trying to say and kind of how this fits into war films Scott I'm curious kind of how you see this fitting into Aldrich's career given that like all of the films of his that I'm familiar with whatever happened to baby jane kiss me mm-hmm. deadly at the longest yard they all kind of have a, a thematic resonance in that they're often about like bad people and how interesting bad people are but they're very very different genre wise what do you see as the connection i think he just really was constantly pushing the envelope uh a film like kiss me deadly i mean kiss me deadly is one of the darkest if not the darkest film noir out there is it there is aren't too many dark? others that end with the end of the world right? yeah <laughs> right it ends with the end of the world and when, in getting there you're following Mike Hammer, who's played by Ralph Meeker, who's in this movie, and he's a fascist, basically. He beats information out of people. He's uh, he's a bad guy. He's not your heroic gumshoe. He's a disturbing fellow. Uh, and the movie leads to a disturbing place. And if you and w- whatever happened to Baby Jane, goodness gracious, I mean, that it seems so ahead of its time, 1962, and you're using these two actresses, uh, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and playing with their image in very outrageous ways. I mean, and it's it's kind of got an element of meta commentary, and uh, it's one of the, it's just a shocking movie. And he made he made a lot of shocking movies, and and uh, and maybe we don't appreciate that quite as much now as we might have if we lived at the time. Uh, and he's just a skillful genre filmmaker. The Flight of the Phoenix is a really good movie. A Hush Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Those are the two movies he made before. Uh, Dirty Dozen. That's uh, you know he he knows what he's doing. <laughs> he's a very strong sort of two fisted genre filmmaker, um, and the Dirty Dozen is very much in that tradition. 
You didn't bring the longest yard into it. Genevieve, I, when we were talking earlier, you said you had opinions on that one. Uh, not necessarily opinions. and It's been a long time since I've seen the longest yard, but it just strikes me as maybe the closest parallel to uh, Dirty Dozen, just because of the criminals coming together for a common goal aspect of it. But you mentioned Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and I was sitting here looking at it in the script, and it didn't occur to me that, yes, I have seen Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. It just did not even occur to me that it was the same person that made the Dirty doesn't so that I'm still kind of trying to put my brain back together after <laughs> after realizing that if, but, if you need help putting together the pieces of the puzzle Suicide Squad is based on the Dirty Dozen. <laughs> Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is where the woman gets a dead rat on her dinner plate. Jared Leto playing the Joker gave his co-workers dead oh, rats. God, I so need a nap. It all fits together so perfectly. You see, it's like a Mike Hammer thing, except I didn't have to beat anybody to get there. Or, or did you? I, I might have had to. I, so I, I was reading some of the contemporary reviews of this, and, and like I read from the, the Bowsley Crowther one. I've got another quote from him. A fictional supposition that is silly and irresponsible. He was so no. grouchy. But Roger Ebert reviewed this movie. Was Crowther ever right? Uh, no, he, he's always wrong. But he's so entertaining to read, though. Yeah. And, and he was so influential. Roger Ebert was right sometimes. But mm-hmm. his, his if you go and read his review of this movie online, it is basically, he could have boiled it down to people burned to death in this movie and I don't like that. But instead he wrote like a thousand words of just ranting invective like sarcastically describing this movie in order to lead up to the fact that oh great people burn to death and that's okay in film now apparently like you can yeah, hear him he gave it three stars it he also like, like there's like one line where he praises it yeah he liked it until the, I think he, I think basically he liked it until the last third and so that was enough for, to, for him to give it three stars but yeah the, the last paragraph starts but real live people burning to death exclamation point take my word for it it was such a delightfully sadistic brutal inhuman scene that i'm glad the chicago police censor board forgot about that part of the local censorship law where it says film shall not depict the burning of the human body if you have to censor stick to censoring sex i say censor out haley mills bare bottom because the human body is evil and it's a sin to look at it but leave in the mutilation leave in the sadism and by all means leave in the human beings being burned to death it's not obscene as long as they burn to death with their clothes on. So he just used it as a <laughs> censor, as an anti-censorship uh, rant. so much sarcasm in that. What was going on with Haley Mills' bottom in 1967? <laughs> I don't know that part, chapter of her career. I, there must have been something. I guess it's, it's worth pointing out that this is kind of one of the first reviews he ever wrote. It, it mm. was from the first year of his career as a critic. So there might be a... A dash of tryhard in, in uh, <laughs> happening in, in this review. And, and maybe just a dash of like the youthful self-righteousness mm-hmm. that I think we possibly all know from like our early writing yeah. careers. I've carried it into my, into my <laughs> 40s. <laughs> but also he's like, he makes it sound like there's just like these gratuitous shots of people running around on fire. And I don't recall any such shots no, in this movie. No, it's unless, all implied. And there's yeah. some shots in the bunker, but it's not it's not graphic. I find that scene very disturbing, yeah. as it should be, but it's not some sort of grindhouse thing. You know what I really like about that scene, too, is that it does put your head as a viewer in a couple of different places, which is, one, you do find this horrific, but do you not also want Jim Brown to be successful? Or do you not want this mission to be successful? You don't want him to fail to light all of these uh, yeah. grenades on fire, do you? 
I mean, they're Nazis. They're in the movies. They're bad. I guess they all need to die. But I never found because because none of the Nazis are characters because mm-hmm. we know nothing about them except Nazis. It's the evil Nazis trope. Yeah, I I didn't really care one way or the other about like how many evil Nazis got burned. I wanted their mission to be successful because we want them to to justify everything that they've been through mm. with some kind of action. And I wanted him to get out alive. But I think that Aldrich does a pretty good job of making you feel a little bit for the victims being trapped in that space. Uh, I mean, he does. Well, because it's not just Nazis. It's all their mistresses. Yeah. And friends. Yeah. I mean, they they do make a point to uh, separate all the French servants that Mm. that are working at the chateau, which I thought was interesting. Uh, (laughs) Free the French, shoot the Germans. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, the moral relativism in this is pretty interesting because, you know, they're, they're, they're bad because Nazis, but, these guys are also bad and they're also killing kind of indiscriminately. I don't know. It's hard to wrap your brain around and you're, you're rooting for them because the movie is structured in a way that you have to root for them. Mm-hmm. But if you step back and think about like, oh, God, a lot of quote unquote innocent people just <laughs> died there. But the flip side of that is that most of the Dirty Dozen don't get out alive either and there there are casualties on both sides i'll say innocent ish i mean these are yeah these are people who are are associating with high-ranking nazis there's a taint to what's going on here well sure but you know there's that scene earlier where a truckload of british women of varying ages i was kind of surprised by that (laughs) um well it's heavily implied that they're all street walkers yeah and that they they literally just like drove down the street and piled whoever was standing on the corner and looking for for a job into the van so like anybody who was out on the streets that night yeah there was just an interesting parallel there as far as who the women in that chateau really are we don't really know they could just as easily have been gathered up in a similar fashion and and brought there also we've all seen black book was it oh yeah so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm predisposed at this point to sympathize with anybody who is trying to get by without being an actual Nazi officer in a World <laughs> War II movie. One thing I will say, to again, to Aldrich's favor is that he does try to emphasize to some degree the badness of these guys. I mean, they are murderers and rapists and they are they're all doing either have death penalties or uh, 30 years hard time these sorts of things and, and you get a character like Telly Savalas who's, who's truly a, a truly the vilest characters you, yeah. you could have in yeah, a he's movie. vile and I, and, I, and I appreciate that there's subtle there's a continuum of badness that it's not just like a bunch of bunch of lovable misfits that these guys that some of these guys are awful yeah. um, and some of them are not and, and uh, it also makes the group dynamic more complex and more really difficult to establish because these are, they're all individuals and they all have uh, varying levels of uh, I guess morality and the film plays with those things pretty meaningfully I think. We're going to get a little more into kind of the question of, of villainy and how they're portrayed, how they're humanized in the second half of this episode but one thing that kind of on that topic that I, I would like to get into here is in the end most of these guys die. And there's sort of a question of, like, do they redeem themselves by doing something brave? Do they redeem themselves by keeping keeping up each other's backs, except for Telly Savalas? Do they redeem mm-hmm. each other by, by dying? Do you, do you think the movie has an opinion on any of these things? Do you have an opinion on any of these things? Well, I think the redemption is mostly in the uh, relationships they form with each other. Because I, I do think the final scene is ugly. And, and you can't just 
cheer them accomplishing their mission because of that, the helplessness of their victims, how, whatever their degree of innocence. But I think however subversive what's led up to it has been, it is a classic war movie dynamic where these guys get together. They form a family of sorts and uh, as a teamwork and helping each other out. And I think that's where the redemption is. Well, we do only get more in-depth backstories of uh, a few of the characters. You know, at the beginning, you get the rundown of everyone's crime and and sentence but um Wadislaw, uh charles bronson's character and franco john cassabetti's character and maggot telly savalas's character and i think um jefferson jim brown's character all kind of get like more explanation of what made them mm-hmm. do the crime mm-hmm. that put them there and i think the nature of those crimes kind of plays out throughout the film and in their eventual fates. And I, Wadislav is basically the only one of the Dirty Dozen who survives in the end, although Franco, yeah, he, <laughs> Franco he, comes he close. He's so close. He's, so, he's, so very, close. he's like, woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> Nothing can stop me now. Yeah. But, <laughs> I'm bulletproof, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but in the context of Wadislav's backstory, he is kind of, I guess, a noble criminal because he shot the medic who was trying to run away sure. from, from his unit and by extension save his men or or try to save his men so there's a the nature of his crime i think kind of plays out in his eventual redemption well i you know i don't want to go down that road because by that light jim brown's character oh sure i mean he was apparently trying to fight off a lynching Mm -hmm. Uh, but he he gets the most noble death too oh that's true yeah, he How kills uh, Clint Walker's character. Also, like he didn't, he didn't try to kill somebody. He's just a, he's a big dude, yeah. and he hit somebody, and the guy died. Like I, I think all of them except Telly Savalas get a lot of softening to the degree we know what they did. Sure. A, a couple of things. I think bringing Maggot was a mistake. I think we can all, all agree <laughs> on that. And it, it amazes me after watching this that Telly Savalas was ever cast as a likable person. That Kojak yeah, happened. Sure. That any any that, that anyone you could ever look at him and, and see kindness or or softness in any way whatsoever. It's it's such a intense performance well we should probably start wrapping up lest this go on too long and have too many segments hey speaking of which (laughs) i know that was the worst uh, transition ever but but okay so the dirty doesn't has taken a lot of flack because it's got all of these segments it's a very long movie Mm -hmm. and it spends if you want to think of it as a heist movie it's a heist movie that blows nearly two hours Mm -hmm. on the lead up to the heist did you guys have any problems with either the pacing or like the focus of the story like what it's choosing to look at i did i thought the second act was sluggish uh, in the in the game of war games the war games part yeah. of the film was was i think the least clear and, and the least compelling uh, for me but though, though i really uh, on the, the the flip side of that i really loved the amount of time we spend in the first act with all establishing all these prisoners establishing that dynamic having them actually build their own you know barracks and uh, uh, all of that was gold to me but but i think that bridge from the first act to the third is a little wobbly for me i i I thought it was paced nicely i'll agree the second act does slow things down and i'm glad i wasn't the only one who's a little unclear as to what was going on not that i didn't follow what was going on but the specifics of it are the third act is so clear like mm-hmm. er, the plan, everything that's laid out is so beautifully orchestrated. They have a rhyming mnemonic, sure. to which they repeat several times <laughs> yeah. to make sure the audience knows what it is. Sure, it just that. took me a little while with the second one to catch up with what exactly was going on and, and, and what they were trying to accomplish. You just know that they, they're, they're crafty and they 
break the rules in order mm-hmm. to win, um, which is you know good information. But yeah, the plan itself is not clear. Uh, the, the actions themselves are not as clear as they should be in that section. I actually liked the way that all progressed in terms because I had the same problem at the beginning. Just oh, I don't know what they're doing and they're spending a lot of time on doing it. And as the plan became clear, as it fell into place piece by piece what they were doing, I kind of felt like I was I was sitting there with Ernest Borgnine's character. You can watch him throughout that scene mm-hmm. figuring out what's going on and mm-hmm. appreciating it more and more and he just he starts getting the stupid grin on his face yeah. as he's yeah, like, like oh that. yeah but i do think it could have been accomplished in less time it could have been it could have been tighter and it probably would have been more powerful for that i kind of agree with what everyone's already said although i do want to call out two little scenes that could be considered superfluous but i would not want to not be in this movie and first is the the very first scene where uh, Reisman is at the hanging mm-hmm. of, the, of the criminal. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's a very interesting way to start this film. And it does, I think, kind of set up a lot of what the movie is doing thematically and with the idea of morality. So A plus for that. And then um, the scene with the band, with <laughs> the the scene where uh, they go to the paratrooper uh, academy or whatever and tweak Colonel Breed. Oh, um, right. oh, you so you know, and obviously Donald Sutherland gets a, uh, a great play there but i just i love the repeated playing of the band that (laughs) horrible music over and over again it's it's great and the the way the band leader keeps like looking over his shoulder with that like just big crap eating grin yeah you know if we're going to call out kind of like things that we're we're really glad are there I, i think suicide squad kind of edges up to having this and doesn't quite but i mean it, it kind of nods at it but dirty doesn't actually draws it out and that's the scene where cassiavetti's character tries to escape and and bronson and brown go after him and they have a huge fight mm-hmm. about whether they're going to leave or not and they're like if you leave we die and it becomes part of their responsibility to enforce the rules and that just the way that plays out is just so so thuddingly brutal and direct and you want to talk about men men movies for men like <laughs> that's kind of what I think of is we've got this camaraderie that's a very brotherly camaraderie and the punishment for breaking that is that you get the crap kicked out of you and you deserve it I'm gonna beat my love into you (laughs) (laughs) it's the bro code you're trying to get us all hung we're all dead anyway don't tell me you believe that creep Reisman want that slick bum make suckers out of you side of you what's with you what is this, anyway? Uncle Tom Week? You come with me, we're home free. He doesn't give a damn about you. We go on that mission, we all get killed. That's what they want. That's what they want. Those idiots in there, they're going to get chopped. Every last one of them. They're not even due for hanging. You, you slob, you slob. What do you think you've got coming? I always forget how great Cassavetes is in other people's movies until I until oh, I see he's him. Good in his own movies. No, he's, no, no, he's, no, I'm not saying he's not. But I you always, remember that he's good in his own yes, movies. That, that I always remember. But then when he shows up no, on somebody else's movies, like, well, he's just he he fits, he fits right into all different sorts of movies. And I, I wanted to add one other point. It's a point that Suicide Squad helped clarify for me, which is that it is so critical for the leader in this case 
Lee Marvin to be so much that the main character, I mean, there's so much the focal point of the movie. And so it, just as an organizing principle, as a center of gravity, you, you just need it. And you, you get that with Inglorious Bastards as well. It's like, this is Aldo Rain, you know, Brad Pitt's character. That is, it is his mission. He is the leader. And uh, if you were to say, have, uh, you know, the, the bear Jew or whatever be the, your main voice in that unit, I think you lose a certain amount of coherence. Yeah, I agree with you. Leadership is really important in both of these movies. That's one of the topics we're going to take up in the second half of this podcast. We're going to talk a lot more about The Dirty Dozen, about how Suicide Squad fits with it and doesn't fit with it. Um, But for now, we'll be right back with some listener feedback on our last episode. Well, we've gotten a wide range of feedback on our Ghostbusters versus Ghostbusters episodes. So we're going to kick that off right quick. Genevieve? Yeah, uh, we'd barely hit upload on the podcast before we got this letter. Fastest turnaround ever from Rob K, who writes, Someone suggested the film's characters have no arc, which I think is a bit unfair. Not only does Benjamin go from a sleazy heel to someone who actually cares about someone else, but all the Ghostbusters change in that when we first see them, they are overgrown kids hiding out in academia. Circumstances force them to grow up and become heroes. Sure, not the most complex characterizations in the world, but I do see some development there. I was the one that said the characters have no arc. And you will not really get me to believe that Venkman cares for Dana on a <laughs> deep personal level. I think that he's a little miffed that she died by turning into an exploding terror dog stone before he finally managed to get in her pants or her long, flowy uh, gatekeeper skirts, whatever. Um, but I will totally cop to the that they do kind of grow up, that they there is a point made that they've been hiding in academia and that they've gotten out into the real world and they're doing something that matters. That is a really good observation. I think. They become successful businessmen. <laughs> <laughs> it's the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with a $22,000 a month uh, firehouse that yeah. they're renting. Well, anyway, uh, Old Busters wasn't the only uh, one of the two movies to get some love. Scott, you have one for us about New Busters? I do. Jace writes, I just want to thank you, thank you, thank you to Tasha for bringing up the subject of the villain in New Busters. From all the reviews I've read and watched, Everyone has said that the villain was forgettable, but I find the villain memorable because it relates to the social context and commentary surrounding New Busters. The character of Rowan North is obviously a metaphor for all those man-babies who have savaged and slandered this movie. The character's references to internet comments are clear commentary, but there's more in the metaphor. When Rowan takes up the body of Kevin, he shows how these people want to see themselves, an antisocial, hostile villain within the attractive, nice-guy superhero body. And most of these men babies are steadfast fans of the original Ghostbusters and use the old Busters to defend themselves online. I noticed the comparison to this in the new Busters when the villain uses the so-called quote-unquote good objects for bad. Rowan uses Aaron and Abby's supernatural book, a celebrated object within the film's universe for bad. He goes even further by embodying the Ghostbusters logo, a celebrated logo of pop culture within our universe and turning it evil. Reviewers focused on the callbacks, but this metaphor stood out even more for me. Speaking to that last point about the villain, you know, embodying the good objects for bad, we I brought that up a little bit in in our conversation. Is uh, he also embodies Bill Murray, the the symbol of the the original mm-hmm. Ghostbusters? So uh, I, I see that observation kind of playing out there as well. I think it's really interesting kind of drawing that comparison to how he particularly becomes the Ghostbusters emblem and then like blows it up into something like bloated and twisted and horrible. I mean, if you want to see that as a metaphor, it's a pretty trenchant metaphor. I think it works. I, I would just wish the character was a little more memorable or a little more memorably played or something. A little more memorable as himself rather than all the things right. he possesses. Yeah. All right. Well, I've got a short one for you guys from a listener named Wayne. 
What compelled me to write was the discussion of Patty in Ghostbusters 2016 and the disappointment of her employment status in the film expressed by the hosts. I saw the current Ghostbusters and I really enjoyed it and I appreciated Patty. I'm a 46-year-old blue-collar, middle-class African-American man who loves all types of music, art, and history, and I have current interests in photography and cinematography as well, so I related to the Patty character quite easily. She's down-to-earth, smart, and willing to expand her views on the world. I think Patty would agree with my belief of never being judged by what I do, my job. Rather, I would want to be judged by the person that I am, my character. Thanks for this podcast. You all do great work, especially you, Tasha. Aww, Tasha. Oh, come on. <laughs> Normally, we don't leave all of the uh, the personal callouts oh, in there, gosh. but th- this was clearly my week. Everybody's everybody's talking. Everybody's <laughs> yeah, talking about like, me. That's a really. Uh, it reminds me of uh, interview transcripts where you leave in. Uh, that's a really interesting. That's a great question. Yeah. Yep. Oh my god, that's the best question I've ever been asked. You must be some kind of genius. <laughs> I always you, I feel like a little bit of a hero when I cut that from one of my own yeah, interviews. Yeah, me too. Uh, I, and I felt like a little bit of a villain when I didn't cut it out of this question, but since that's the theme of this week, I was okay with it. Um, I mostly wait, wait. The theme is you being awesome. That's the no, no. The, well, okay, that's the the other theme, but no, <laughs> okay. the theme that's is, the theme of life. The theme Scott. is villainy. Um, I mostly wanted to put this in because I I just I have read so many responses on the internet at this point where people are angry about Patty being left out of being a scientist and left out of being an original Ghostbuster and left out of kind of the little white girls club that that is going on. But I've also read so many responses from people who really really dug into her interest in life, her passion, her personality, her not just the the kind of like streetwise like Leslie Jones joking that goes on, but specifically all of the things that she she functions as socially within that group to keep it going, to keep it operating. And I think it's really interesting watching all of the different reactions from very different directions on that character. And to me, it's just, this is another reason why we need more people of color on screen. So one character doesn't have to be all things to all people. Mm-hmm. And you can find the character that, that most suits you and most fits your interests and needs. I think if you were to graph the uproar over that character, it would probably drop off pretty sharply after the movie came out and you saw the performance and you saw the character and it's a well-developed character so you know anyway uh, we're glad to hear as many different takes on the leslie jones character as possible here is a letter that is not about how awesome i am in fact it's about <laughs> keith oh. um keith your thoughts on the use of the word dated uh prompted somebody to specifically write in and ask you for a better term would you like to read us that letter Oh, yes, sure. Christopher writes, I do wonder if there are some cases where date it might be applicable. Take the film Logan's Run, which I like, but would describe as date it. I'm always aware that the movie came out after 2001 A Space Odyssey, so it seems out of date or behind the times in a way that, say, Forbidden Planet does not. I don't think it can be expected that once a new bar is set for film techniques or narrative style, suddenly all films must meet that bar. Films need to be taken on their own terms, which is the problem with the dated criticism to begin with. But Logan's Run sticks out in such a strong way in the post-2001 world, more so than other sci-fi films of that era, like Outland or Silent Running. So can data be used in a legitimate way to describe a film that isn't meant as a throwback to earlier conventions, films like The Artist, for example, but seen behind the times for their era? Is there a better way to describe this idea? You know, that's something I, I, I kind of struggle with because Logan, and he chose the perfect example because Logan's Run, for those of you who don't know, uh, is a science fiction film from 1976 that looks at, like it was set in t- inside a 1970s mall um, <laughs> and, and is the most 70s vision of the future you'll ever see. I just don't like the term because it has such, the negative implications are such that it's dated, we can dismiss it. It's dated, it doesn't matter. It's dated, it's behind the times, it's antiquated, it has nothing to say. And like I, I, part of what, I mean, the, the, the 70s-ness of that movie 
is part of what makes it interesting to me. So I don't know. If I'm going to propose a, a, a another term, I would say it's maybe it's of its time. We'll, we'll just, I was we'll going to say, say that. I was going to say that too, because I've heard you say that so many times mm-hmm. and usually in a tone that tells me what you mean is dated, but you don't want to say the word dated. <laughs> no, it's not that. It's not that. <laughs> it's that the value this has as an artifact may sometimes overshadow its its value as art. Let's maybe, maybe put it that way. But I almost feel like I am just sugarcoating the, the term itself. So let's just say that if it didn't have some value calling something dated, we wouldn't use it. Maybe it's a little overused, or maybe we should we should all work together to find something that, that's a little less condescending. Do you want to find a term that's less condescending, or do you want to reclaim dated and just get rid of the the dismissive quality to it? I think it's Which, too late for that. Yeah, uh, I think it's too late for that. And, and like, you know, like you know, when I hear people describe the special effects in Star Wars as dated, I just uh, I, I part of me dies, you know, because because <laughs> those effects are still wonderful. I, I'm just pulling out Star Wars as one example. Let me maybe an even better example is like Ray Harryhausen's mm-hmm. stop motion. You know, the effects are dated. The effects are perfect. The, the, there's these this strange, dreamlike, herky jerky not quite real life, you know, monsters and, and creations. But, you know, I don't go to movies for real life. And that that's fine. And get in the mindset of, of that film and the effects fit in that, that world perfectly. Yeah, I, I just I always hate the idea that films kind of get left behind uh, films getting left behind that we can't dated just seems to be like that that's in the past we're done with we're done talking about Logan's run. I want to take it with us and, and, and th- talk about it in a constructive way. Mm-hmm. Um, I the just, film is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and of course, I mean, it's part of what makes film watching and film criticism interesting is, and maybe what we do here interesting is putting it in the context of the time it was uh, released and um, finding other films to compare it to, and get you know, it's uh, it's a lot more enriching to do that than to just simply dismiss it as dated. Well, absolutely agreed. Well, as always, we appreciate when our listeners share our thoughts and their recommendations, and we especially appreciate it when you call us out individually and tell us we're better than everybody else (laughs) on the podcast. Please send letters explaining why Keith, Scott, and Genevieve are all better than me. (laughs) To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll rev up the adrenaline, dye our hair green, pop grills under our teeth, hand each other dead pigs and used condoms, and otherwise try to get up enough internal speed to function in the world of Suicide Squad. You'll also get to hear this. I, what, what if we'd had like a hot pink type on the screen when we first meet George Kennedy and Dirty Look for that later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at Facebook.com slash Next Picture Show and follow us on Twitter at, at Next Picture Pod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, remember, number 16, we're all going to come out like it's Halloween. Halloween.